0: Snop Production. Hello and welcome to the briefing. I am Jen Fran. Katrina Blowers joins me. Happy Friday to you, Kat. Oh, oh, happy Friday to you! And a special shout out to
1: everyone listening who works weekends like me, for whom Happy Friday oh, means nothing.
0: It's a sad Friday for you. I'm so sorry. I was going to ask you what are you doing this weekend, but you know what? I'm not going to. I'm not going to put you through the pain. I'm not going to ask you. Lucky I love my job, right? It is indeed. Well, it's been a very big week for the British royal family. Who after that interview and. Today on the show, we are going inside something called The Firm.
1: That is the term Harry and Meghan used to describe the palace. So what
2: is The Firm and is it a closed shop for outsiders? She must have been desperate and she was asking everyone and, and no one was giving her the help she needed.
0: Yeah, we're heading to Buckingham Palace in just a moment with a royal insider who's been in the palace many, many times. But first to the headlines and yeah, it's more royal news. Prince William has
1: denied the royal family is racist as the first royal to directly respond to the allegations made by Prince Harry and Meghan Markle in that Oprah interview.
0: Yeah, so he was touring a primary school in London. Um, This is what royals do. They have events that they have to go to. And he was asked if he had spoken to his younger brother in the wake of the interview.
2: Sir, have you you spoken to your brother since the interview? (laughs) I haven't spoken yet, but I will
0: do. Yeah, so he's walking away from the media scrum. You know, there's a bunch of people covering the event and he was asked a second question.
2: Can you just let me know, is the, the royal family a racist family, sir? They're very much not a racist family.
0: So he would have definitely known going
1: to that event that he was going to be asked about that interview. And both Harry and Meghan claimed in their interview with Oprah this week, a member of the royal family who is not the Queen or Prince Philip questioned the skin colour of the couple's son, Archie.
0: Yeah, now the palace has released a statement on this this week. Um, They said that that allegation is going to be looked into, but it's going to be looked into by the family privately, so they won't be launching an investigation into it. I imagine any subsequent events that any royals have coming up, they're just going to want to be getting in and getting out because there's going to be so much (laughs) press trying to fire questions at them as well.
1: And in their respect, thank goodness for face masks because they're not going to be (laughs) scrutinised for their facial expressions. But it's interesting, he said, we are very much not a racist family. As you know, no matter what questions are thrown at you, public figures answer them in whichever way they choose. So for him to have such an unequivocal denial is interesting and I think very strategic. Yeah.
0: Well, I don't think he's going to say, you know what, yeah. We are a racist family. Have a great day. (laughs) Back home, it looks like we're not going to hit that October
1: vaccination deadline, Kat. Oh, yeah. Health authorities have admitted the federal government's target for a full rollout of coronavirus vaccinations by October is in jeopardy. And some people might even be waiting for a jab into 2022.
0: Yeah, the Health Department Secretary, Brendan Murphy, told a Senate committee yesterday that the doses won't be able to reach all Australians within that initial time frame they set out. We don't
2: know whether we'll be able to achieve two shots by the end of Will October. All original... I'm saying is that with a 12-week interval,
0: it's, yes. it's going no. to be difficult. Yeah, so I just want to clarify what that 12-week interval is. Initially, the advice was that you needed four weeks between AstraZeneca doses. So you need two doses of this vaccine, four weeks in between that time frame's been revised to 12 weeks right so now if you get your shot in say october your next one won't really be till january anyway so that's sort of part of what's blown it out there.
1: But look, the federal government has repeatedly said, even uh, up until last week, that everyone in Australia, all adults who wanted it, would be vaccinated by the end of October. Mm-hmm. But the Australian Medical Association Vice President, Chris Moy, says pushing it into 2022 isn't the end of the world.
2: If you have one shot, you do get really good protection for the entire 12 weeks anyway. Also, it actually does make it a little bit calmer in terms of having to rush to get get people to have two shots quickly. And also, you've got to remember, we've got the flu vaccines to get in, which can't be given at the same time.
0: Yeah, the other thing I think to take into account here, and Brendan Murphy said as much before that um, Senate committee there, is vaccine hoarding. Um, which, look, I've just called it that because, let's face it, that does sound like what it is. So earlier this month, the EU blocked 250,000 doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine from coming to Australia because they basically said they hadn't got their promised doses yet. And I think it was maybe the first time that they exercised um, that that power that they bestowed upon themselves. So yes. it's it's going to be an interesting one to see whether or not that happens again to Australia yeah. and how it will affect us. Mm. We
1: are about to ramp up our local production of AstraZeneca vaccines uh, by the end of March, about a million a week, which is going to be boosted even more. So hopefully yeah. we'll have enough here that we can vaccinate everyone without relying on anyone overseas. Well, the military in Myanmar has again opened fire on demonstrators protesting against last month's coup, and they've accused the country's deposed Democratic leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, of taking bribes.
0: Yeah, this is compiled um, from local media reports that suggest that 10 people were killed in crackdowns on a number of separate protests staged across the country yesterday. Now, authorities have hosted a press conference where a spokesman um, for the military alleged that Miss Su Kyi had accepted more than $750,000 worth of gold bars from a regional politician.
1: Yeah, quite a claim. The 75-year-old remains under house arrest after being arrested at the outset of the coup on February 1. Uh, Since then, 60 protesters have been killed. Amnesty International says many killings by the military amounted to what's being called extrajudicial executions. Yeah,
0: it's basically when the government... um Well, I mean, when the government kills people without any kind of mandate, any kind of legal process at all, there is also an Australian here who is detained alongside um, Aung San Suu Chi. He's her economic advisor, a man by the name of Sean Turnell. And I believe it's the first known arrest of a foreign national in Myanmar since the army seized power there. And New South Wales is a bit salty there about the federal government deciding to give tourism funding to Queensland. They
1: certainly are. The government unveiled a $1.2 billion scheme to subsidise flights to destinations around Australia. Great news for us travellers, including to a number in Queensland to support the domestic tourism industry.
0: But the New South Wales Transport Minister, Andrew Constance, reckons Queensland should not receive the funding because the Palaszczuk government kept its borders closed to other states. I wouldn't be giving too much favouritism to Queensland after their behaviour. Okay, fair enough, Andrew Constance, that's your opinion, (laughs) sir. It should be said, Queensland did get five locations subsidised, um, which I believe is the most of any state in Australia. New South Wales only had one. And also Salty is WA's Premier.
1: Yeah, well, because WA only got one destination in Broome subsidised as well. They're calling the scheme unfair. They say they're being punished because of their tough border stance. But that doesn't really stack up if you look at what's happening in Queensland, right?
0: Yeah, no. Well, I mean, if you're being punished, Queensland had a very similar tough border stance. They seem to have been rewarded somewhat. Bit of inconsistency there. I think for this to work, though, there's probably got to be some consistency around borders and border closures, um, because right now, obviously, the states control their own borders. There's no national hotspot definition. So a state can decide when something is a hotspot and how to react to that. So that still leaves travellers with a little bit of uncertainty, I think. Absolutely. And Jan, Mm.
1: also, given these flights are available from April 1, now we're seeing that vaccine rollout pushed back into next year. How do we know that it's going to be okay for when we book these tickets?
0: Yeah, good question. All right, Kat, let's go to Buckingham Palace. Oh, let's do it. Today brings an end to one of the most tumultuous weeks in the modern history of the British monarchy. <laughs> wow. That does, that sounds very dramatic, doesn't it? But It, it does. Hey, Harry and Megan's sit-down, tell-all interview with Oprah Winfrey was massive. I think the last time a British royal spilled this much tea about the palace was in 1995, and this was when Princess Diana sat down with the BBC, now nearly three decades ago.
2: Do you think Mrs Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage?
0: Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it
2: was a bit crowded.
1: Yeah, there were so many explosive claims made by Harry and Meghan during that two hour chat, including that a member of the royal family had questioned the colour of their son Archie's skin and that Meghan had suicidal thoughts and was refused help from the palace.
0: Also, the thing I found interesting was that Harry said he'd been cut off financially and that his father had stopped taking his calls and that they were effectively driven out of the palace and would have stayed if they were supported and not Mm. undermined by what they kept referring to as... The
2: firm. The institution. The firm. The firm. The The institution. The firm. Your
0: firm. Your firm. Yeah, today on The Briefing, we're going to find out what actually is the firm or the institution. So there's the family, and then there's the people that are running the institution. Those are two separate things, and it's important to be able to compartmentalise that because the Queen, for example, has always been wonderful to me. Mm, Megan's trying to explain it there a little bit, but uh, many questions. Being (laughs) diplomatic. Yeah, exactly. You know, what are you not saying? That's what we're going to try and find out. We're going to take a deep dive into how Buckingham Palace actually works.
1: We are going inside the palace with Juliet Reardon. She is the editor at large and the royal correspondent at the Australian Women's Weekly.
0: Yeah, Juliet, welcome to the briefing. Um, You have spent quite a lot of time inside Buckingham Palace. You know how the so-called firm works. Can you tell us, well, firstly, what is it and why do they keep referring to it as the firm?
2: Yes, I mean, the firm is a term that the Duke of Edinburgh coined a long, long time ago. Um, and it was, a, it was, you know, when he was first joining the family and he, he realized that there was this, this whole structure behind everything that went on and uh, that you weren't just marrying, in his case, uh, the Queen, you were marrying the entire institution. You know, the monarchy's a business. And it's a business that works for the people of Great Britain and for the people of Australia. There are silos. But at the the top silo is, of course, Buckingham Palace itself. And the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh come under Buckingham Palace, as does uh, Prince Andrew before he um, left the royal family and Princess Anne. Then you've got Clarence House, which is um, the court run by the Prince of Wales. Prince Harry and Prince William and uh, used, used to be within Clarence House. But then as they got older, they set up Kensington Palace. And under Kensington Palace, we have Prince William and Prince Harry before he left and their wives. So those are the three areas of the firm. And then within each of those areas, they all, each individual, each principal, as they're called, have their own private secretaries who's mm. like their, their chief advisor. And then there's communications department, so media team um, under that. And then there's all sorts of, you know, footmen and ladies-in-waiting and other people who do other things uh, within the royal household. All of that together is the firm.
1: Juliet, I would love to hear about exactly what that structure is like with the royal staff. We've heard so many suggestions this week that they are, in fact, the real puppeteers behind the monarchy. What do you make of that?
2: they don't dictate, but they do advise. All of those people are there to work for the principal they are working for. So in the Prince of Wales's office, Prince Charles is very much the leader, there's also the Duchess of Cornwall in there, and those people are there to help them in their work. But of course, the principals can't be on top of everything. So it's like any business, you know, under the CEO, there's a number of other people. And those people have carte blanche to do what, what they feel is right to do in order to keep the business moving forward. They will be informing the principal. They have regular meetings. But only the, you know, top level stuff gets to the principal immediately and then other stuff filters through. So it, it's very similar to any business.
0: How does it work when an outsider joins This family or this firm?
2: I mean, there will be some advice when someone comes in from the outside. I mean, you know, we're talking about people marrying into the royal family. Kate came in, and, uh, you know, you have to learn as you go. The first person that you learn from is, of course, the person you're marrying they can give you the best advice possible. But then, of course, there's a team of advisors that can say this is the way the business runs. You know, this is this is how we do things. And, and that is what Megan will have come up against. It's what Princess Diana came up against. And there actually isn't as much coaching as people think. You know, those rules that Megan was suggesting about not crossing your legs or whatever. You know, that's just anecdotal advice that might come from, you know, another royal. It's mm. not something that a private secretary would think to tell their boss to do. So, um, you know, you do, you do learn a lot on the job. When I've talked to Prince Charles for instance about how he learnt Um, he just said it was a process of osmosis you know he got advice a lot of advice from his grandmother when he was young Mm. and then you're sort of thrown out into the world and you learn as you go but he would watch the Queen and he would watch the Duke of Edinburgh and especially the Queen Mother and he would learn and then forge his own path so i can imagine the situation where megan feels lonely because she's used to being her own boss in her own world with her own brand making her own decisions with people working directly for her and she would have had people working directly for her but they they weren't necessarily the people that she'd chosen they were the people that were already there part of Kensington Palace, part of that structure. And then she would have been, yes, left to her own devices. I mean, what surprised me about the interview was how woefully ill-prepared she seemed to be for the new role she was undertaking. That was a
1: surprise to me too, Juliet And and I would have mm, thought she would have been given more advice around that.
2: Bit of a Google. I think that (laughs) the advice should have come from Prince Harry. You know, he was the one that was introducing Meghan to the royal family. He was the one, you know, the idea that she only realised she had to curtsy in the car on the way to Windsor Castle is strange to me. Mm. Um, I completely understand the American perspective here. And I think a lot of the issues that Meghan has faced are actually potentially culture clashes between the Hollywood American way of doing things that she has been used to and the way the royal family runs, which is a, you know, thousand year old institution Mm. with um, very embedded systems.
1: Now, how easy or difficult is it to leave the royal family? It seemed to us from the outside looking in that Harry and Meghan just up and left.
2: Prince Harry has talked for many, many years about the difficulties he has had um, with his job. He's always um, had a dislike of the media. He doesn't love being in that spotlight. He he hated it as a child. And then as he grew up, what he he wanted to do was um, be in the army, work for the military. And that's exactly what he did. And then it was the media that kind of forced him out of that job when New Idea magazine here revealed where he was in Afghanistan and it was deemed too dangerous to keep him there, too dangerous for his fellow Mm. soldiers. So, I mean, that was was a devastating moment for Prince Harry. That was a moment when the media impacted on his life in a way that uh, was irreparable for him. And those moments cut deep for him. When he married Meghan... And I can imagine the conversations where she might have said, you know, this isn't how I'm used to working. This isn't how it has to be. Let's see if we can find a new way of working here. They didn't manage to find the new way of working with the royal family. They didn't manage to find that compromise that they were hoping to achieve. And so, yes, they, mm. they chose their own path. And by all accounts, they seem happy in that decision, you know. It seems to have given them the freedom and the platform that they want to move their life and work on.
0: Mm. One of the things that struck me about the interview is when Megan said that she uh, went through a period where she was having suicidal thoughts and that she approached the firm or the institution for help and she didn't get any. Who would she have approached for help in that situation and why do you think it wasn't provided?
2: She said she went to HR. She obviously did not speak to the family directly because Prince Harry told us that. So, you know, I think she possibly should have spoken to her doctor as well. Um, And now I know she said that, that she was advised not to check in to a facility to help her. And I can't imagine how she felt. She must have been desperate and she was asking everyone and and no one was giving her the help she needed. You know, the Queen said in that statement that they, they were unaware of the extent to which Harry and Meghan were unhappy. So I think they will be certainly looking into that.
1: Seems like we're at such a moment in time, Juliet. What do you think should happen from here?
2: I think there will be a lot of discussions Behind closed doors, I think that the Queen has made it perfectly clear this is a matter for the family. You know, I think we all hope that there's some healing within that family. I think it's unlikely that Harry and Meghan will go back to working for the royal family. That ship has sailed now. But I mean, I'm a bit sad about that, as I think many people are around the world, and and I suspect the Queen is also. But. Nevertheless, you know, they're, they're much loved members of the family. I'm sure we will see them together again. This institution has lasted some very difficult times and I'm sure they will last through this one.
0: Juliette in there. She's the editor at large and the royal correspondent at the Australian Women's Weekly. Been following royals for many, many decades now.
1: Look, and I guess while she ended on a positive note, what she said was that she thinks the family will survive, but who Mm. knows about the future of that so-called firm. I think they are going to need to get with the times.
0: Yeah, a lot of um, drumming up of interest in becoming a republic and abolishing the monarchy. At least that's what I'm seeing on Twitter, which, you know, I do have to remind myself, not the real world. <laughs> <laughs> Can't believe everything you see on Twitter. All right, that is it for our show. Well, that is it for the weekday briefing. But, of course, coming up, we have the weekend briefing with Jamila Rizvi-Jam. What do you got? Tomorrow I am sitting down to chat with Eddie Perfect, who is an extraordinary writer, singer, performer, composer, children's TV presenter, doer of all things. He's uh, returned to Australia from New York, where he had been writing and composing some pretty big Broadway musicals. And we caught up about COVID, homeschooling, and the future of the arts here in Australia. I love that. Jam, you always get to talk to really good people. That's happening on the weekend. Make sure you tune in. Um, Thank you so much for your company this week. I'll catch you next week. Bye. Listener.